Yes, the sewage was still fresh and living. Fresh, too, the graveyard. And, in a sense, living, too. Let but the mind dwell on the thought of it. And the smell, here faint, there dense and obsessive, became a permanent feature of the place. And it was difficult to remain detached where, at one point in the trench wall, a human hand stuck out, a thin sheath of blood and sticky flesh, the color of black flies that barely hid the bone beneath, projecting from a torn coat sleeve. The hand had been there during the battalion's last stay in the sector, but then it had been an ordinary hand and of quite a different color, whitish, like a dead and drooping flower. It was not a large object, but it was horribly suggestive. As one looked, one realized that the plowshare turning up the mountainous rubbish heap must have struck many such, and it was borne in on one that to walk here was like walking through the dense thickness of a vast pudding concocted of corpses. The place appeared in the communiques as the Butte de Vauquois. Jules Romain from the novel Verdun, The Prelude. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode SA-10, Vauquois, a heap of ruins stuffed with dead men's bones. This episode will be a little different from our usual narrative episodes. This is a gift for my Patreon supporters to enjoy. Uh, Thank you so much for your continued support. My hope is that this comes off as a little bit travelogue, and a lot of history. The story of the Meuse-Argonne region in the First World War cannot be told without talking about the Butte de Valcois. Having been there twice now, I wanted to tell you what it was like on that hill and inside it. The first time I visited the Butte de Valcois, it was the 20th of February, 2016, My stepson Lee and I were on a week-long tour of the Verdun battlefield and its environs. We really lucked out that week because the Meurs had experienced nothing but rain for weeks prior. The river itself overflowed its banks to the point where there was flooding and a few roads were underwater, but the winter season and lack of snow cover meant we could really see the ground under the bare trees and brush, particularly north of Verdun. So on this day, We had planned what we called America Day, where we would drive to Montfaucon and the Meurs-Argonne Cemetery at Romagna sous Montfaucon. It was a Saturday, miserably rainy, raw, and misty. We loved it. I swear we drove around the French countryside for that entire afternoon and only once passed another car on the road. We had the whole countryside to ourselves. After lunch at, and an unsupervised tour through, Jean-Paul de Vries' excellent Romagna 1418 Museum, seriously, we touched everything, and it's okay because Jean-Paul told us to, we headed off 
for the Butte de Vauquois. At the time, I didn't know too much about Vauquois, only that mine warfare had dominated this sector of the front and that this hill was a hinge on the Verdun salient's western side. I had seen photos on the web, of course, and knew the barest details of the wartime history of the hill. I knew there would be some mine craters. When you get close, you see the hill is now wooded, and even in winter, this obscures the true state of the Butte today. Coming up the road to the hilltop battlefield, you are coming in from the rear of the French lines. The parking lot is on the western end of the hill, and here there are numerous artifacts related to the struggle for Vauquois Hill displayed at the edges of the lot. There is a visitor center that appears to be a former dugout, and it's a great little place full of weapons, tools, and other artifacts used in the Vauquois sector and beyond. At the upper edge of the lot are steps that lead up to the summit of the hill, and it's a good walk to get up there. The first thing you will see as you clear the trees is a massive mine crater. It's like a giant plunged his fingers into the hill and tore out a huge chunk of it. It's a hole big enough to fit a house in, literally, and I mean literally in the real sense of the word. This is the result of the May 14, 1916 mine set off by the Germans, where 60 tons of Westphalite explosives were used in an attempt to rupture the French lines. This isn't the only crater like this. Get to the top of the hill, now some 18 feet shorter due to the First World War, and you will see a chain of massive holes that bisect the Butte de Vauquois. Not only has six meters of earth and an ancient village been wiped off the top of the hill, but the heart of it has been ripped out too. The first time on Vauquois, my brain was boggled by what my eyes were showing me. Holes of this size simply could not exist, even though I was looking at them and a short while later in them. I mean, a two-story home could fit comfortably in these craters with room to spare. I had never before experienced this where my brain was having a difficult time registering what I was actually seeing. To see these mine craters and know that these were man-made creations was startling. How could humans make craters this big? The Butte de Vauquois and many of the Great War battle sites in the Verdun area are remarkable because they have been left largely as they were when the war ended. At Vauquois, the hill has been maintained only so that nature doesn't reclaim the area of the line of craters. Other than that, it's as close to 1918 as you can pretty much get. You can walk the line of French trenches on the southern side of the hill, where Marius Roussel's stark white memorial stands today. Cross down into the massive craters and up to the German trenches just a few dozen meters away. The German trenches are, as usual, better preserved as they incorporated fresh concrete and stones from the ruined buildings around them. At one point, the very walls of the old church were worked into the German trench lines. Here at Vauquois, you will see just how close the lines were, and how by one point in the war, 
infantry assaults would altogether cease because they were recognized as pointlessly suicidal. Mine warfare became the only viable option. But we have to go back to the beginning of the war to tell the story of the Butte de Valcois. In August of 1914, as the Field Grey legions of the Imperial German Army marched into Belgium and northern France, French General Pierre Houffet deployed his Third Army in the Meuse-Argonne region along the line of Grand Pré to Dunsemeuse to Verdun and on southeast to Saint-Miel. The rumble of the guns in the distance would have reminded the locals of summer thunder, only this was much more malevolent. The dark clouds on the horizon didn't bring rain. They brought death. On the 3rd of September, the German 5th Army, commanded by the Crown Prince Wilhelm himself, marched down into the valley of the River Air. The Butte de Vauquois lay in the path of the invader now. And in Silberg, Vauquois Hill is part of a line of separated hills running between the River Air and a lesser river named Boante in the Meuse region to the immediate east of the Argonne Forest. And Inselberg, to clarify, is an isolated hill rising up out of otherwise flat ground. To translate the term literally from the German, it means island mountain, meaning this hill is an island surrounded by flat open country. And Inselberg is sometimes also called a Monadnock. I mean, look at the value you get here, folks. Not just World War I history, but free geography in German lessons as well. The village that sat on top of this hill was the result of centuries of human settlement, like 17 centuries of settlement. The records began in the 2nd century AD, when the Romans set up a colony on the crest and named it Cicada Hill. The colony became known for the pottery produced in its ovens. That settlement faced barbarian invasions over the centuries, but during the Middle Ages, the settlement slowly grew and came under the aegis of the Duke of Lorraine. In 1654, the entire area was absorbed into France proper. In 1784, a new church was built on top of the hill and a village grew around it. By the fateful year of 1914, 168 souls inhabited the hilltop. As the Germans marched down the valley of the River Air, Vauquois was evacuated. Its citizens had hoped the war would be fought elsewhere, but suddenly it was here, and it was real. On their way to the nearby village of clermont en argonne Vauquois's mayor, Ponsignon, and his seven-year-old grandson were both shot to death. The successful defense of the Verdun region during the Battle of the Marne caused the German 5th Army to retreat to a line running Apremont to Montfaucon to Gercourt. The French 9th Division d'Infanterie moved right in and took the hill. After a reset, the Crown Prince's 5th Army launched drives against the Saint-Miel area to the southeast, where the Saint-Miel salient was created, and new attacks were launched in the Meuse-Argonne region. On the 24th of September, Valcois was shelled heavily, so heavily that the French defenders abandoned the village. It was a decision that was to have fateful consequences as the Germans quickly seized the hill and immediately began fortifying it. <laughs> 
with their hobnailed boots on the summit of Volcois, the Germans had commanding views of the entire area for kilometers and kilometers in just about every direction. The inevitable French response took a month to come. In late October of 1914, as the ill-named Race to the Sea dominated Allied and German attention in French and Belgian Flanders, the French 10th Division d'Infanterie launched three days of attacks on the hill. Each time, the French reached the summit only to be thrown back by determined German counterattacks. On the 8th and 20th of December, the 10th DI launched two more attacks. Again, the French reached the hilltop only to be thrown back. Carpets of muddy blue blouses and red trousers covered the southern slopes. 1915 was to be the year of struggle on Valcois. In support for the first French offensive in the Champagne region, the French 5th Corps under General Michelet threw 10 battalions of infantry at Valcois on the 17th of February. To prep the battlefield, two engineer companies blew six mines on the southern side of the hill. The result was a bloody failure. New attacks on the 28th of the same month also failed, despite massive artillery support that rocked the butte. As these last attacks ended, the French 10th DI had little to show for the 4,000 men it had lost in the last two weeks. A French soldier described the scene. In quote, February 28th, 1915. In a gaping funnel hole smokes the fresh soil, bruised with black spots. The corner of a disemboweled foxhole is no more than a heap of buried branches. The three men there are dead. Petit Sevillard, Kleber, who is there on his back, his legs dangling, arms bent, his hands in the air. His hair is full of dirt, and the blood continues to flow very slowly from his face, among the black clots, even from his neck. We unbutton his hood where the nameplate shines in a buttonhole, and I search the brown hunting vest that is still warm on his chest. I put aside his watch and his papers. And I think, as I walk away from this poor guy, that a dead man who has just died is no more frightening than a living man and that perhaps an old dead man is no more frightening either. This is the first time I've seen a corpse. I find my calm frightful." End quote. March of 1915 saw more attacks, and finally a half-success on the side of the French. By the middle of the month, the Poilus had clawed the southern half of the ruined village away from the Germans, and now they dug in. The Germans counterattacked, and this time they were the ones to be repelled. Further French attacks in June, however, also met with bloody failure. Both sides dug in ever deeper. Trench warfare became the rule as it was everywhere else, and neither side could dislodge the other. From March 1915 onwards, infantry attacks dwindled away to the point where they stopped altogether on Valcois. The frontline trenches were separated by dozens of meters, and as the underground mine war picked up, no man's land became an increasingly impassable warren 
of ruined buildings and deep craters. A Poilu recalled that on the 11th of March, 1915, he and his comrades came down on an odious duty. Quote, New detail. Frontline companies, of course, to evacuate the old corpses to the bottom of the butte. The drudgery of corpses is organized regularly. Those who are corpses for the moment know how to work well. All the bodies are piled up just behind the round gutter in a large collapsed area of the ground. Dark blue hoods and greenish tunics, gray or brown breeches, iron boots and fleece laces, kepis, caps, and crushed helmets. Scales of snow drag on them like dirty papers. There are too many. The dead have no value, said that unknown soldier from La Villette. Just as we sleep and eat near this charnel house, so we work without quitting or laughing. We reach into the pile, grab a body, and drag it onto a tarpaulin and spread it out, stretch a perch on it. We tie the corners of the canvas on this pole. We bind the body by the waist because it tends to sag in the middle of the pouch. A man at each end, the funeral litter shuffles off, bumping right and left against the walls, stiff feet scraping stones at turns. The body falls to the ground every 50 meters because the carriers are panting and sweating, end quote. By that spring, Vauquois was as horrific as anywhere else on the Western Front. Sebastian August Schmitz, a soldier in the German 98th Infantry Regiment, recalled later after a period of fighting in April 1915, quote, We arrived in a region of death. Here, on the crest, the trees do not green or flower. Trunks and branches are burnt charcoal. We do not see the spring, which is bursting at the bottom of the hill. We stare eternity right in the eyes. We are on an advanced hill in the Argonne, which falls steeply on the north side. There used to be a pretty peaceful village with a pilgrimage church here that was visited from afar. It seems that this was the birthplace of the Maid of Orléans. Now only remnants of cellar walls still stand. We own half the mountain and the French the other half. Through rubble upon rubble stretched on both sides, the ground is sliced with shelters and connecting trenches. The places are named Town Hall Cellar, The Corpse Cellar, Dead Man's Trench, Wounded Way, etc. We are 10 to 30 meters from the French, at the narrowest place so incredible to someone who doesn't know this terrible war. Our preferred weapons are grenades. Each man has a wad of cotton and a face mask with a filter against gas bombs. The number of German and French corpses lying on and in the pile of rubble of this hill of the dead that spits fire is estimated from three to 5,000. With each stroke of the shovel, we touch a corpse, more corpses, nothing but corpses. In front of our trench lay dead bodies curled up, ragged, putrefied, German and French mixed. To bury them is to ask to be shot. In spite of that, our brave men have already saved and returned to the earth many of the dead, having taken the identity discs, letters, and etc., so that we can at least notify the families of the certainty of their deaths. The sight of these corpses all around, 
but even more, the smell is just appalling. We smoke from morning until night, end quote. The war moved underground. As elsewhere on the Western Front, it was exceedingly dangerous to be above ground on Valcois. French and German engineers went to work digging into the hill. Tunnels and mine galleries became underground facilities where men worked, slept, and lived as mortar shells continuously pummeled the trenches above them. Other tunnels and galleries were extended under the enemy's lines, packed with explosives, and then detonated in massive explosions that steadily transformed the Butte de Valcois into Les Montes Morts, the Hill of the Dead. Valcois was well suited for mine warfare. From the surface down some 70 meters, the hill is made of gez, a silica and quartz rock that is found in the Argonne region. When gez is wet, as it usually is under the surface of Valcois, it is relatively easy to dig into. It is also a stable rock that didn't require wooden supports for tunnels dug through it. Walk in the tunnels on the German side, and you'll be 30 to 50 feet underground in damp and unsupported tunnels. It is an experience like no other. Gez is also flexible, and so it could absorb some of the shock from the mine detonations. Below the Gez is clay, which was full of water and created the need for pumping. Below the clay is what the French call green sand, a siliceous sand that served as a shock absorber for the entire hill. Below the green sand is limestone. Throughout 1916, the main effort of both the Germans and the French was, of course, at Verdun, just a few kilometers away. This, however, did not mean that Valcois went quiet. On the contrary, the Germans took four months to prepare the massive mine on the western end of the hill. Keeping pressure on the hill would mean French forces being tied down and thus not being diverted to the mill on the Meuse. On the 14th of May, 1916, the Germans blew the biggest mine ever detonated on Valcois, a whopping 60 tons of Vestphalite explosive packed into a mine gallery that tore out that massive chunk of the hill. Again, this is the huge crater you encounter when climbing the terraced steps up to the summit. The enormous explosion created a crater 80 meters wide and 40 meters deep, and 108 French poilus were killed instantly in the blast. The back and forth continued. In August of 1916, the French detonated a 12-ton mine near the church, and in December, the Germans detonated a mine on the eastern end that killed another 71 poilus. In between smaller mines called camouflets, punctured the terrible tension everyone on the hill faced. Accidents also took their toll, like the mine that exploded prematurely on the last day of 1916 while it was still being loaded. 36 poilus were killed. Throughout 1917, Vauquois was no longer deemed such a priority. The changing nature of warfare, namely the increasing use of aircraft for reconnaissance and artillery spotting, was quickly rendering the tortured butte a bloody and increasingly irrelevant sideshow. Interestingly, both the French and the Germans sought to solve the problem of Vauquois the very same way, 
by blowing the entire hill to kingdom come. The Germans set to work, digging new mine galleries 110 meters below the surface. The French worked on galleries some 45 meters below the brutalized earth. In the end, both sides had to abandon their plans as there weren't enough men to carry out either plan. Two to eight ton camouflage kept everyone awake, however. Under the surface, so many tunnels crisscrossed the inside of the hill that break-ins into enemy tunnels were not unknown. These were terrifying experiences, and we have one story that has been passed down through the years from a Monsieur Guy Bigorn. Guy is an older gentleman who, during the summer of 2018, led my friends and I, along with a couple of dozen French folks, down into the mines for some two and a half hours. While down there, we heard this story, which actually occurred at Les Eparges on the other side of the Verdun salient. Les Eparges was another scene of devastating mine warfare. Guy's grandfather, Georges Bigorn, was a sapper in the 6th Company, 4th Battalion of the 9th Engineer Regiment. From February to August 1915, he was stationed in Les Eparges. During his tour, Georges had an underground encounter with the enemy. As he dug a gallery under the German lines, a pickaxe poked through the dirt wall in the gallery, and suddenly a part of the earth collapsed in front of him and his fellow sappers. Two German heads who were trying to dig under the French lines poked through to stare at a bunch of stunned Frenchmen. Another sapper near Guy's grandfather grabbed his rifle. Georges Bigorn, then just 20 years old, quickly hissed, Fais pas les cons. I can't even repeat like what that means, but I trust everyone can use their imagination. The two Germans on the other side weren't particularly aggressive, so both parties decided to act like they hadn't seen each other. By 1918, Vauquois had gone quiet. The last French mine was detonated on the 21st of March, the same day the great German-led Kaiserschlacht began further to the north. The Germans blew their last mine on the 9th of April, and this one was the 519th and final mine explosion on the Butte de Vauquois. The Germans had set off 198 mines. The French had set off the rest. With the development of aircraft and now the massive battles being waged up north, Vauquois was an obsolete relic of a bygone era. It was held now because it offered local advantages and because it was part of the continuous front line that could not be abandoned. The Hill's last part in the war came on the 26th of September, 1918, when units of the American 35th Santa Fe Division were tasked with seizing the hill. By that point, Germany's fortunes in the war were waning rapidly, and manpower was at a premium. 200 men were assigned to defend the line running from Vauquois to the ruins of Bohoy to the immediate west. With 75 men, led by 19-year-old Leutnant Friedrich von Hülsheim, holding the hill itself with just six light machine guns, there was little hope of stopping the mad onrush of fresh doughboys that would soon come up the battered southern slope. Von Hulesheim had contradicting orders 
His division commander ordered him to blow the entire hill off the map, while his battalion commander ordered him to hold out to the last round. The young German lieutenant would have his work cut out for him as he went with the latter option. The American-led bombardment that began at 2.30 a.m. on the 26th of September slammed some 40,000 shells into the slopes and summit of Vauquois over the course of three hours. The smoke rising from the shell bursts mixed with the heavy fog that morning to reduce visibility to just a few yards. By 0530, the artillery barrage transitioned over to creeping onto predetermined lines, and this went on until 0740. The doughboys of the 139th Infantry Regiment, 35th Division, advanced out of their trenches as the shells rained in on Vauquois, and the fog helped conceal them. 2nd Battalion, led by Major James Rieger, was tasked with taking the shattered hill. French advisors had informed the Americans it would take days to capture the hill. The 140th Infantry, also from the 35th Division, lay in reserve. The Americans pushed up the slopes of the hill. Leutnant von Hulesheim came out of the tunnels to find doughboys running in and out of the fog all around him. As soon as he saw them, it was too late to fire. They had already disappeared back into the mist. As the fog began to burn off, American artillery came raining back down on the hill. Now it was joined by German artillery that slammed into the southern slopes as groups of American troops worked their way up towards the summit. The German artillery was being assisted by spotters in elephant balloons, which were themselves being targeted by American pilots buzzing over the battlefield. Sergeant William Triplett, an 18-year-old promoted to NCO rank because he'd been taller than his buddies back in training, was part of the 140th Infantry Reserve Force. Having lost most of his company in the fog, he struggled to keep his platoon together as the battle raged up ahead. He joined up with units of the 138th Infantry, now also supporting the assault in the foggy confusion. They moved towards the hill, where battle raged on it and above it. Triplett recalled, quote, Our planes were buzzing all about, the high ones observing and the low ones strafing the hill ahead of our skirmish lines. One fighter sailed in close over the crest, made a tight turn, and exploded. His wings and tail jumped out of a cloud of black smoke, and the front end arched down like a flaming comet. Looked like he'd run into a direct hit by a 77 millimeter, end quote. Up on the hill crest itself, Major Rieger of the 2nd Battalion, 139th Infantry, led a frontal assault on the German lines on the north side. The incredibly brave attack put von Hulesheim men in disarray, and they ran into the tunnels. With Major Rieger's attack, Vauquois was effectively captured in 45 minutes. Rieger would later be awarded a Distinguished Service Cross for his actions that morning. Leutnant von Hulesheim attempted to put together a counterattack, but found that most of his men were gone, dead, wounded, missing, or captured. Instead of fighting to the last or blowing up the hill, the young man made his own choice. He surrendered himself and his surviving men. On the crest of the hill, it was a chaotic scene. Young Sergeant Triplett made it up there and noted, quote, 
there was one absurdity. The three very reckless or idealistic men were crossing the left hump of the hill, the one in the center carrying a flag like they used to do in the Civil War. When it flapped, we could see that it was really two flags, the stars and stripes on the right sewn to the tricolor on the left. The 138th evidently got along with the French better than we had. They must have had bad luck or gotten over their foolishness because we never saw them again after they crossed the crest. End quote. Foucault was secured on the 26th of September, 1918, and the front lines gradually pushed farther and farther north over the coming weeks. It was never again a scene of combat in the Great War. As described at the beginning of this episode, today, the hill is a stark and brutal testimony to the horror of the First World War. Vauqua village was rebuilt after the end of the war, but at the foot of the hill. The tunnels remain, and if you make reservations through Les Amis de Vauqua, you can get into them as part of a guided tour. Tours are usually offered on the first Sunday of each month, and they cost around five euros per person. It's the price of a soda or a beer. Seriously, it's that cheap. Getting into the tunnels was something truly remarkable. Through Randy Galke of MersArgon.com, I connected with the Les Amis group and got into a tour in the summer of 2018 with my stepson Lee of the Viking Age podcast, my army brother Chuck, and my good friend Mikhail. I've posted on the website firstworldwarpodcast.com several entries that have photos of the surface of Vauqua, and I'll be posting everything I have from inside the tunnels. Getting inside Vauqua was one extraordinary afternoon in a trip of extraordinary days. It was an experience that I will never forget, and it's right up there with being at Lieutenant Colonel Drion's command post at the Bois des Cars at the exact minute of the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Verdun. And it's up there with being able to stand in the foxholes of the Lost Battalion near Charlevoix Mill. We entered the tunnels through a small four-foot-by-four-foot doorway at the end of one of the German trenches, and you had to enter hunched down and backwards in order to step down into a damp passageway. Once inside this first tunnel, we entered a dimly lit world of hand-hewn tunnels that had wiring along the walls for lights and German street names at the corners. Monsieur Guy Bigorn led us through a tour of tunnels and rooms where bunks and tables sat, along with equipment and gear collected. In some of the rooms, it looked like the bottles and tools were as the French and Germans had left them a century before. The walls in the German rooms still had nails with bits of tar paper affixed to them. The Germans had thrown up tar paper and paneling in some rooms to help make the rooms a bit more cozy. When the 30 or so tourists packed into one room whose ceiling was just an inch or so from my 5 foot 10 inch height, only for a moment did it cross my mind that I was some 30 to 50 feet underground with tons of earth above my head. I very quickly dispelled the thought. What it must have been like for the men who had to live in that hill. At regular temperatures, the tunnels were about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
a little chilly for just a t-shirt and a fishing shirt over it. During the war, the air inside the underground complexes would have been the same chilly norm with pockets of hot air in rooms where pumps and other machinery worked. The air would have been stale with earth, exhaust fumes, sweat, and human waste. The air must have been nauseating at times. The French tunnels featured wooden supports along with low tunnels that helped support a light railway cart system for the removal of earth and rock from the mine galleries. On either side of the hill, though, the accommodation shed light on the dark, troglodyte world these men endured for years on end. Above them would have been the constant pounding of trench mortar shell rain. Life was a constant shuffle through danger-close duty above ground, then work details underground, an uneasy rest that was never enough. Duty in the trenches must have been a tense experience, not just for the random death or dismemberment handed out by snipers and mortar shells, but for the fact that at any moment you could be blown to pieces by some mine dug dozens of meters under your feet. I have heard or read somewhere that there was an unofficial rule in play of Alcois, where mines would only be blown during the day, no mines would be detonated after 6 p.m. Not sure where I got that piece of information, however. It was a wonderful tour, and Guy Bigorn said himself that he is a talker, and thus his tours are generally longer than those of the other guides. I could have listened to him for days. He has a remarkable wealth of knowledge, and his passion for the subject of Volcois is evident. Volcois is one of my favorite sites, and having visited there twice now, I think any future trips will always see a stop there, just like I will always seek to stop at the Meuse-Aragon Cemetery and Jean-Paul de Vries' Romagne 1418 Museum. Those craters at Vauquois just never cease to put my mind on pause for a moment. Even after a century, they still stretch the mind's capacity to accept them as reality. Well, okay, that about does it. I hope you've enjoyed this supplemental episode. Again, photos of inside and outside Valcois will be forthcoming on the website. So just keep an eye out when I post updates on Twitter and the Facebook. Again, the website is firstworldwarpodcast.com. Much gratitude to Guy Bigorn for letting me retell his grandfather's story here, and to Michael Grams of NormandyBattlefields.com, who helped me with some very speedy translation work. Thank you, sir. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please contact me through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at WW1Podcast, and on Instagram, at, at WW1BattleCast. Not into social media? Totally cool. Email me directly at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Please consider reviewing Battles of the First World War Podcast on iTunes. It really helps us out. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support of the podcast. Talk to you again soon. Take care.